0: right in Revelation. Uh, that, that blessed are those who hear this Word. Uh, so there's an, an intention from God that would be blessed through it. And it's with that in mind uh, that we've approached this series. We just have felt like look, well, this is something that's in Scripture. We don't want to ignore it. So we want to do our best to uh, understand it and apply it to our lives. So that's why we're doing this series. There's no hidden agenda here. Uh, we don't have some secret chart that we're going to bring out that will help you understand every aspect of Revelation. Quite honestly, uh, I've spent probably 200 hours or more of study uh, so far in this book. And I don't have a clear conclusion exactly what it means in every way. I don't have a chart to show you. I have some things I think Revelation is very clear on. And so you'll hear as we go through, we will emphasize the things that are clear. And I will do my best to interpret the things that are unclear. Uh, But we don't have some agenda that's driving us but the Word of God. Uh, and the expectation that given that this is a book of the Bible, it's God's Word, given that it explicitly says it's meant to be a blessing, we have an ex- expectation that it's going to be a blessing. So that's our prayer as we uh, look through Revelation. So I just want to say that up front, because uh, I think uh, maybe if you haven't been with us for a while, you might think, what's going on here? And why are you choosing this, this book? And if you're a guest with us, I in some ways apologize Uh, because you're here maybe the first time and it's on Revelation. You're thinking, oh boy, uh, will I ever come back? Uh, Well, I would love for you to come back, and we also know there's many other good churches we'd love for you to go to. Um, But we hope you come back because we, um, as a church, believe that God's Word is indeed His Word, that He's a God who wants to speak to us. And our prayer is that you would experience Him doing just that, even as we look through Revelation today. Uh, So we are in chapter 7. Uh, we'll dig into that, but by way of introduction in acts chapter twenty seven there's a story a true story about the apostle Paul, and he 's actually a prisoner in that chapter he 's being he's been taken from uh, Caesarea to Rome, and so he uh, is put on a ship as a prisoner to be transported to Rome. The only problem is well there's a number of problems, but uh, the only problem is that they end up getting delayed and they have to Sail during the wintertime. Actually, uh, by Roman law, from what I understand, they closed down shipping uh, for three or four months of the winter. You weren't allowed to sail. But the boat was laid. It had to get to Rome. And so they sailed. And, and the Mediterranean can get uh, storming in the wintertime. and can be dangerous. And the ships they had back then weren't really good. So when you read about this journey, you hear about this journey, don't think like the clipper ships, the sailing ships of the, of the 1800s, right? Those beautiful... Ships that, uh, that we see replicas, or actually some of them still survive, that can sail so fast and cut through the water. Not, not at all. Think more like a barge with a sail put on it. That's kind of the, the sorts of ships they had. So Paul is on this ship and he's being transported to Rome. And sure enough, it's wintertime and they get caught in a storm. And in those days, those sorts of situations meant certain death. And so, as they're being driven along, the story goes on in Acts chapter 27, they're being driven along, they're doing their best, they're taking desperate measures to somehow survive. They end up throwing all of the cargo over, overboard to get rid of it so that they wouldn't, uh, wouldn't sail so deep that they might not run aground and be uh, driven to, knocked into pieces by the waves and so forth. So they're going through all those sorts of things. And actually, because he's a prisoner, the policy was if something like that happened, if there was a shipwreck, they would kill all the prisoners. Because Roman justice, it's better to kill you and so you don't get away with your crime if you committed a crime. So that's what was going to happen, likely to happen. Uh, and so everything looked terrible. The, the storm was awful. They all were going to die. That's the sort of situation. And in the midst of that story, an angel, a messenger from God, a, a spiritual being, an angel, is sent to the Apostle Paul to tell him, you're going to make it. You're actually going to make it to Rome. And not only are you going to make it to Rome, but everybody on board is going to make it safely. And so Paul uh, has that message in the midst of, of this terrible storm, in the midst of, of certain death, there's this revelation from God, you're going to make it, and everyone here is going to make it. And that actually changes the course of their actions in the storm. They, they do things to, first, they don't kill the prisoners, but also they do things to survive the storm. And actually, if you read the story, uh, the way that they survive is the ship it actually does get driven onto rocks, and does get beaten to pieces by the waves. But each person's able to float to the shore on a piece of wreckage or to swim. And the whole, the whole ship load of people, they all do make it. They all survive. And God, uh, Paul does make it to Rome. Interesting story. Why do I tell it? Well, uh, it's background to Revelation 7. And it's background to a truth that Revelation 7 gets at, that life can be like a storm on the ocean. Life can feel like and be like a storm on the ocean where we are overwhelmed, where we feel confused, we are horrified and scared by the circumstances around us. But if we have a word from God that we're going to make it safely, it makes all the difference. Revelation chapter 7 is a word from God to the church. To us in the church, historic and the church certainly in the first century, that you're going to make it. That's what this chapter is about. So we're going to dig into this. We're going to learn about this truth as we dig into Revelation chapter 7. That God, in God, we are safe through the storm, no matter how hard it might seem at times. So let's pray and we'll read God's Word. Lord, thank You for this truth. And thank You that we can know that we're safe in the storm in You. Uh, Lord, uh, I pray for all of us. We all need to hear this truth. I pray for those in our midst who in particular, even right now or soon in the future will feel like they're facing certain death in the storms of life. I pray You'd minister to them. You'd speak to them. and It wouldn't just be cool ideas and even just simple truth from Scripture, but You, the living God, speaking to them. You are the one that, that gives us safety. You are the one that communicates that we're safe in You. Lord, help me to to proclaim your truth. Help me to understand. And Lord, help us all to hear it. And through this all, Lord, be glorified. There's no one like you. And it is so wonderful to know that we are safe in you. So do all this, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to read the whole chapter, starting in verse 1 of chapter 7. Uh, As ongoing, just by way of context, so uh, John's receiving this Vision. It's an ongoing vision. Uh, There's this scroll, and we talked about the scroll representing God's plans for judgment and rescue. There's been six seals that have been uh, taken off and opened, and and there's things behind those six seals. And then there's this interlude that we're going to talk about in chapter 7. Then there'll be the seventh seal. We'll get to that later. Uh, Don't be distracted by the seals, but just know uh, where it flows in the story. There's this interlude here in chapter 7, and it says this. Neither thirst anymore, the sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb is in the midst of the throne, will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God's word from Revelation chapter 7. Again, I want to dig into this and learn how God keeps us safe through the storm. I want to look at first the four winds that it talks about. Then I want to look at the 144,000. And then the countless multitudes. So those are the the three points with the main point, of course, being He keeps us safe through the storm. First, the four winds. This is after the sixth seal has been opened. And uh, there are four winds. There are four angels actually standing at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth. and that the winds uh, might not blow. These winds are going to blow and they're going to bring, actually, destruction. Now, last week, we talked about the seals, right? The, the first four seals were what? Do you, anyone remember? You can shout it out, actually. There were four horses, right? Four horsemen, right? It's very likely that this is the same thing. It's speaking of the same thing. So those four horsemen uh, represented God in His holiness, and His wisdom and judgment, releasing... Releasing judgment on the earth for the sinfulness of mankind of warfare. And then all that comes with warfare. These four aspects uh, related to warfare and all their implications. So there's destruction coming. There's four horsemen. Now, why do I say they're related? Well, first, there's four. But we we also know in Revelation, be careful with numbers. Because numbers in Revelation primarily represent ideas and symbols, not the amount. Uh, So let's be careful. But elsewhere in Scripture, in Zechariah, Uh, the two were put together. Actually, there's a connection. So just to show you that reference, so you can not just take me at my word, but see God's word. Uh, You can put that up. Zechariah 6. It says, Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains. And the mountains uh, were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, "What, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, these are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves for the Lord of all the earth. So that's in Zechariah 6. And just a side note, as we seek to understand Revelation, we want to go back to other sections of Scripture that are similar um, and certainly have direct references, but even just similar in the genre of literature. So Zechariah, Ezekiel, Daniel, uh, parts of Isaiah as well uh, have a lot of parallels with Revelation. They really help us understand Revelation. So in Zechariah, we see the 4 it's actually four chariots, but it's horsemen. And then there's four winds. So they're connected. So it looks like it's the same idea that there are these four winds that are going to bring destruction on the earth. So like the judgment coming with the four horsemen, there are four winds that are coming. So it's basically going to envelop the earth. That's the idea. And the point here is not to get lost in the four winds and exactly what they represent. But what happens... The four winds are about to be released. And an angel says, wait a minute. Stop. Before you do that, let me seal God's people. Right. So, so uh, do not harm the earth or the sea, verse 3, or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. By the way, uh, Toby, if you could keep up the, uh, the, the main verse that from the section... So, there's a verse, the, the point number, and then the verse under it. So, people can follow along and certainly follow along in your Bible. So, verse 3, uh, it, it talks, Do not harm until uh, we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. So, wait till we seal these servants on their forehead. So, they're to be sealed, they're to be set apart. Um, again, there's a parallel in Ezekiel to this. It's a, a different situation, but again, very parallel, where. Our, in the days of Ezekiel, the people had rebelled, and they had, after hundreds of years of rebellion and turning away from God, God finally brought justice, brought consequences. And so, uh, Ezekiel was a prophet who spoke of those things and spoke of hope and redemption as well. And uh, he speaks of a judgment coming though. in Ezekiel uh, chapter 9, and, and it helps us understand what's going on there. So, in Ezekiel 9, and you can put that verse up again it says, And he called to the man clothed in linen. So Ezekiel seen this vision, who had writing case at his waist, and the Lord said to him, "Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it." So in this vision, there is a basically like an angelic figure is supposed to go through the city and mark the foreheads of everybody who is sorrowful over the evil of the city. So that would be all those who have trusted in God, and are sorrowful over the evil that's going on. So mark their foreheads. That's what he says. To mark them out. And then it continues, and to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. So, the vision is saying we're going to mark out those who belong to the Lord, and we're going to bring judgment on everybody else. That, that's what's being said. So very parallel to what we're seeing here, there's a seal that the, these Servants of the Lord are being sealed. They're being marked. They're being set apart. Actually, if you advance later in Revelation, you see that they're marked actually with a name on their foreheads. This isn't the mark of the beast. We'll get to that at some point. Um, this, that, that's the other sort of mark. But these are the servants of God. They're marked with the name. Whose name? Always the best answer? Jesus. It's Actually, of God and the Lamb is what it says in, in 14. All right, so they're marked with God's name. The, the, and God as represented in, in um, Revelation, we see certainly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but prominently on the throne, the Father and, and the Lamb. And so that's what's on their forehead. So they're designated as God's servant. They're sealed. They're set apart. And so they are to be uh, preserved, really, from the judgment that's coming. God is setting them apart. He's sealing them. But before these winds are going to blow, He's saying, set these ones apart from Me. And the implication there is that they may not receive the same judgment that's coming. That they may be set apart. That they may be kept safe. So so that's what's being said here. That these servants are to be sealed. They're to be set apart um, before, before the judgments come. Uh, So so again, from Ezekiel and elsewhere, that's what's going on. God's saying, designate My servants, My people, first. So they're not to receive the judgment, they're not to receive the the full force of what's coming on the earth. The full force of these judgments. Now, Revelation and the rest of Scripture doesn't say that they're not going to receive an effect from the evils that come. So the winds are going to get released, right? So it's not, don't release the winds on those who have the seal but designate them as belonging to the Lord and set apart and safe spiritually even though physical affliction and suffering and woes are going to come." That's what's being said here. That's what's going on. That's important to get. Um, remember, all, when we go through Revelation, in any book so important to understand the context. Who is it written to originally? What's the context? And we spent time going through the beginning of Revelation uh, where the seven representative churches are addressed. And they're living in situations where they are experiencing persecution and it's going to get worse. They're experiencing strife. They're experiencing, in a sense, the winds being released on them. And it's to these people, this chapter in the whole book is written. So saying, guys, uh, you are experiencing the winds. You are feeling the effect. You're not actually removed from the effect, but there's a ceiling. There's a setting apart. There's a safety in the Lord even amidst the storm." Isn't that good news for us? Isn't it so important to understand that even in the storms, that in the Lord, those who trust in the Lord, those who belong to Him through faith, are safe. They might suffer. They might go through physical affliction. They might go through difficulties. But ultimately, they are safe in the Lord. Jesus says it very similarly in John chapter 10. He speaks about His sheep. And He says this in John chapter 10, verse 27, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them, and they follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of My hands. My Father who has given them to Me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. It's very much the same idea. My sheep know me. They hear my voice. They they understand who I am. They turn from self and sin and they run and trust me. And this, of course, is believing in Jesus and who He is and what He's done. He's gone to the cross. He lived a righteous life. He's gone to the cross. On that cross, He died. He shed His blood. The God-man perished bearing our sins that we may be forgiven for all of our sins as we trust in Him. And we might be accepted in Christ, through Christ, as a... Daughter or son of God because of Christ's blood shed for us in righteous life, And so as we hear His voice, as we hear this truth about Jesus, as we, as we encounter Jesus, we hear and we're drawn to that. And we put our faith in Him. And John 10 says that those are My sheep. If you've put your trust in Jesus, ultimately you are His sheep. As much as you might struggle and as much as you might doubt at times, if there's a speck of faith as small as a grain of a mustard seed, uh, As a mustard seed, what Jesus says, that's basically the smallest thing in in the culture of the time. If you have just a little tiny bit of faith, you indeed are His sheep. And you are safe in His hand. It's not how much faith you have that makes you safe. The more faith, the safer you are. No. Do you have faith? Do you hear the voice of the shepherd? and Do you trust in Him? Even if it's wavering. Even if it's tiny and little. You can be assured you are His sheep. And, and, and if you've never trusted Him, trust Him right now. Turn to Him. Run to Him. Run to His forgiveness and His blood shed for you. His resurrection His victory over sin and death is freely given to any who would receive it. So trust Him. And just simply communicate, I trust You, Lord. Lead me. And He says clearly in John 10, He says through the story of Revelation 7, you are safe in Him. You will never perish. You might perish physically. You might struggle. You might be tempted. But you are safe from the ultimate danger, spiritual death. You are safe in the Lord. You are in His hands. That is good news. We need to hear it. And as we go through Revelation, Revelation's got a lot of terrible things that it talks about, terrible judgments. Uh, and it's, and it's, it's scary, it's intimidating, it's, it's you know, not the not the book I would pick necessarily for people who are just encountering the truths of Christianity because it just is right there, the, the judgments of God on sin, and it's, it's the, it speaks of the final judgment and so forth. There's these terrible things in Revelation that are realities that are represented that we need to wrestle with, and I don't mean to pull any punches with that truth. But isn't it good of God to give us chapter 7 and other sections to say there's safety? You needn't go through. The judgments and the fullness of what comes with these judgments. You needn't live unsafe. There's there's mercy, there's grace, there's safety in Him. We need to know that, guys. We need to to build our lives on, on that fact that we are safe in the Lord. Though we may go through struggles, we may go through tribulation, I don't think the Lord's going to remove His people from tribulation. We see it in chapter 7 we see it elsewhere. We're going to go through it and we're going to be safe in Him. It's so important to know that we can be safe in Him even amidst the storm. Like the story of Paul, to have a word from God, you're going to make it. Trust me. The winds of judgment and the, the horsemen of war have their way in the world, and Christians do, effect, do experience the effect in many ways, in in many different times in history. Actually, one uh, little example of that that maybe you haven't thought about is what happened to the Christians on August 9, 1945. That was the day that the United States dropped the atomic bomb on Nagasaki. Without getting into the details of of why and what, and we can debate that, and I would have a, a particular opinion on that. That's not what I'm here to talk about. When the bomb was dropped, Did you know that there were at least 10,000 people that proclaimed the name of Christ that died that day? Nagasaki is the historic center of Christianity in Japan. And there were 10,000 people who claimed the name of Christ who died when the bomb was dropped. And just the reality of of war and its implications and and, and its effect on us and the brokenness of humanity, It causes us to suffer and it causes Christians to suffer. Well, you might say, well, God didn't keep them safe, did He? Yes, He did. They might have perished physically, but spiritually, they are with the Lord right now. They are in perfect bliss. They are enjoying the reward that we're reading about in chapter 7. They're in His presence. They are safe. And though the world might throw the very worst at them, they overcome the world in Jesus who has overcome the world. They're safe, and guys, we need to know that this section of scripture is given to us that we might know that we are truly safe in Jesus. Moving on, let's speak of the one hundred forty-four thousand. The one hundred forty-four thousand are the ones that are actually sealed. So, what does this mean? One hundred forty-four thousand is—is this you know the there's only going to be one hundred forty-four thousand believers as? as some people believe. You know, there's only 144,000 that really get to go to heaven and the rest are going to live in like a second-class heaven. You know, there's like, like on an airplane, you know, there's first class. You get to sit up there and, and I've never sat up there. I'm always back in the chairs that are narrower than my shoulders. Um, and, you know, that's the rest of us. But if you're outside the 144,000, yeah, if you believe, you'll, you'll get somewhere, but it's not first class. This is first class. Is that what's going on? Sorry if you've never heard that and I'm, I'm confusing you. Um, but No! that's not what and you can probably guess where i would stand on this i think the 144,000 and i'll give you the reasons clearly represents all christians uh, it represents all christians but in particular christians as they go through tribulation and suffering and the uh, the whole point here in this chapter right the whole original audience they're trying there's a message going to them guys you're safe in the storm so does it help to talk about 144,000 that's not you to, to help you know that you're safe in the storm? Well, they'll be safe in the storm, but I'm not part of them. That wouldn't make any sense. These, these 144,000 represent the people of God. I'll give you multiple reasons for that. First, just to notice, numbers and Revelation represent ideas and truths, not, not amounts necessarily. Numbers are used a lot throughout Revelation. You'll see again and again, multiple times, the number 3 repeated, the number 4 repeated, the number 7 repeated, 6 a little bit as well, 12 repeated, and then the number 1,000 repeated. A thousand in that day uh, is basically the biggest number that you would use. Um, there was one number a little bigger, but, but a thousand, was just, it means a big number. The modern equivalent of a thousand would be a gazillion. That's what a thousand is. It's a gazillion. How many are a gazillion? I don't know. It's a lot though, right? And when you use the word gazillion, you just mean a lot. There were so many of them, it was beyond counting. That's what 1,000 means. And so these are 144,000. And if you look through Revelation, you'll see that uh, the number 12 is used. And then there are times when there's 12 and 12 used. So in the New Jerusalem, it's described having <clears throat> actually a number of ways with 12. It has 12 gates. And each gate represents a tribe of Israel. There were 12 tribes of Israel. There are 12 foundations to the New Jerusalem. Again, symbolizing the people of God. The New Jerusalem is the people of God in their final state of bliss with the Lord. There are 12 foundations representing the 12 apostles. So there's the number 12 represents the people of God. God uses the number 12. So there actually are 12 apostles. It's not symbolic. And there actually were 12 tribes. But God in His providence is using that to represent the number 12. represents the people of God. So 12 apostles, 12... Tribes, it's 12 times 12. How much is 12 times 12, anybody? 144. That's right. Uh, by the way, the city is also measured how, how it's the same height, uh, length, and depth, width. Um, and it's what? It's 12,000 stadia. Stadia is just the length of a stadium. Uh, it's like 200 yards. Uh, and so it's 12,000 by 12,000 by 12,000. The number 12 again and 1,000. It doesn't mean that the city, it could be. I mean, God can do anything He wants. It doesn't mean that it's so much the city is actually 12,000 stadia by 12,000 stadia and 12,000 stadia tall. But the city represents the fullness of God's people. It's huge. It's 1,000 times 12 times 12. It's all the people of God. And it's tremendous and it's glorious. That's the point. And it's cubical, too, by the way, which represents the Holy of Holies, where God lives. That's the point of the New Jerusalem. Well, anyhow. We're not there yet. We're in chapter 7. And here, 144,000 represents the fullness of God's people. It's a perfect number, and it's a big number. That's the point. It's the perfect number, and it's a big number. And this is shown by the use of numbers in Revelation. It's also shown if we dig into the tribes that are listed. So, Good, it's up there. If you look at the list of tribes, you might notice there's some things that are a little bit out of order. Usually when the tribes are listed, Joseph isn't listed as a singular tribe because it's usually listed by his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And usually Levi's not listed because Levi, the tribe of Levi was subsumed into the other tribes, lived among the other tribes and was a priestly tribe. And instead, you have Ephraim and Manasseh listed instead of Joseph and Levi. But what do you see here in this list? You see Joseph and Levi listed and you don't see Manasseh and you don't see I mean you don't see Ephraim and you don't see Dan. Right. Wow, interesting. So it's an unusual listing in a, in a someone an Old Testament student, Jewish person of the day, uh, God-fearing Greek, uh, synagogue attending Greek would have understood this right away. It's missing this. So what's going on there? So there's something it's representing, right? So so <clears throat> This is part of why I would say this represents the whole people of God, not Jewish believers. Uh, I have other reasons for that as well. Um, Because if it were really saying these are Jewish believers themselves, uh, it would list them with the right tribes, I think. If there were actual, literally, 12,000 from every tribe. It wouldn't list them this way. Dan and Ephraim were known in the Old Testament and historically... Uh, among the Israelites, as the tribes that were most idolatrous. They had given themselves over to idolatry. They had wandered from God and worshipped the Baal, the false gods, the, these terrible gods of human sacrifice and sexual perversion that the Canaanites worship. They had given themselves to following those gods. And so they represented idolatrous Israel. And so it's likely that they're left out of the list to say that these are the pure and faithful people of God. This, these are the real people of God. The, the genuine believers. And it's a full number and it's a perfect number. Now one other reason why I think it represents all the people of God, so that would be Jewish and Gentile believers all together, is that's the consistent message of the New Testament. Uh, we can go elsewhere to see that, that. It's very consistent that there's one people of God. God doesn't have like a, a different plan for Jewish people versus Gentile. It's all in Jesus, our Jewish, Jewish Messiah. He, we're one in Jesus. Jew and Gentile rescued in Him. We're together in Him. It would not make sense with the New Testament and certainly it would not make sense to the New Testament church as they are learning from Ephesians and elsewhere that we're one and they're living it out together, Jew and Gentile alongside each other, to be told, well, there's a special thing happening for the Jewish believers, but not for you Gentile believers it's not consistent um, with Scripture. So whether all the different theories behind that, I just think the, the weight of the evidence, this is the whole people of God. And then we're going to look at the rest of the chapter. I think that that's also evidence too. But the point here, not being sidetracked by the particulars too much, the point here is that this is a big number and it's a perfect number. It's a big number and it's a perfect number. Why would you want to convey that to the early church? We read through some of those churches. Some of those churches, actually most of them, were they big churches? No. They were small. And they felt small. And they were living in a culture where they were the minority in that culture by far. And because of their faithfulness to the Lord, they were oppressed, they were persecuted, they were ostracized at least by their neighbors, former friends, family members. Some of them couldn't get jobs. Some of them were persecuted to the point where they're losing their lives. They felt small. They felt neglected. They felt alone. And yet, God is saying that He has a vast and perfect number that belong to Him. And so the the message to these struggling believers is, guys, you're not alone. You may feel small, but there's a vast number of people that I have planned to belong to me. And it's the perfect number. I know what I'm doing. I'm in control. Your numbers are not an accident. Your numbers are not merely because you're in a difficult place. Your numbers are because the Sovereign God in His plan has arranged the perfect number and it's a vast number. That's the idea here. That's, that's what's being communicated to these believers that, that they would be di- not discouraged, but encouraged by this 144,000. Guys, we need to hear the same thing, don't we? We need to know that we're, we're not alone. There's times I think you know it's true wherever the church struggles and wherever the church is the minority part of the culture, and that certainly has been true in New England, we can feel at times just kind of we're just a curiosity off to the side, this struggling remnant that's somehow surviving. We can feel small. We can feel alone. We can feel somehow that we're maybe failing. We're doing it wrong. Our small number must mean that somehow we miss God. And Revelation 7 is an encouragement to us that God is sovereign over these things and He has the perfect number, and He has, in the end, a vast number. A a countless number that will belong to Him. And so it's encouragement for us, guys. and, And I think we see this work practically, don't we? One of the benefits when we go to a conference just this past July, a bunch of us went to a, a conference with our family of churches. It's so helpful to be part of a family of churches, not just to be alone as a church. To know we're connected with other believers who are loving the same biblical truths that we love and committed to the same mission that we are committed to. To, to know that there's others and to be with them. So a bunch of us got to go to a, a, a biennial conference. Is that right? Every two years? Um, the celebration conference for all of Sovereign Grace. And we went there and there were, uh, I think, thousands. Right? There's over a thousand at least. Uh, believers from the Northeast region were together just to worship God, to be built up in truth and to build new friendships. And I think everyone came away from that, encouraged in, a, in the way that Revelation 7 is intended to encourage us, knowing we're not alone. There's lots here, and there's lots going on. There's encouragement that comes from that. I, I trust we all were encouraged who, who were there. I don't know if like, amen? amen, the ones that, that traveled. We had a great time. And that's what's going on here in Revelation 7. The people of God are to be encouraged by the fact that God has the perfect number and it's a vast number. And that's where we're going next with the scene in heaven. John looks next. So he's seeing these different things at different times. It's, it's, there's a, a chronology in his, what he's seeing, but not necessarily always a chronology in, in the particular visions. This one I think is chronological. He, lo- he looks next and he sees a great multitude, it says, beyond number. Verses nine to seventeen it says verse nine. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and for the Lamb. So he sees this vast number. It's beyond, it's beyond number. It's a great multitude. So it's not just it's not one hundred forty four thousand. This symbolic number. It's, a, it's just a vast number. He can't count it. So so picture like if you ever been at a, a big huge event where there are just people everywhere. That's what he's seen. It's, a vast, it's beyond counting. I'm not even going to start to count. It's a gazillion people is what he's seen. This vast number. And they're from every tribe, all peoples, all na- nations, all languages. And they're in white robes and they're holding palm branches. Palm branches are a symbol of, of it's what you would use to celebrate a victory. So they're celebrating this vast multitude from all over the world. All types of people everywhere beyond number, in white robes, celebrating. Celebrating what the Lord has done. They're they're saying salvation belongs to our God. They're celebrating it like when Jesus was going to Jerusalem and they shouted, Hosanna! Save us, O Lord! These guys are celebrating that they are saved. That salvation has come. That God has overcome evil and sin and darkness. They're celebrating this vast multitude there. The fullness of His salvation and His great glory. That's what's going on. It's a a wonderful scene. And it's actually parallel to multiple scenes throughout Revelation. We see this repeated in chapter 5 we saw it, chapter 11, and chapter 21. Multiple times it pictures this this end time, this fullness of the people of God's reward and inheritance. That's what's being shown here. So, Revelation repeats this throughout. And And with good purpose that we might focus on this promise. That we might focus and live for this wonderful, glorious reward. Now, we should recognize a few things here. That this vision falls directly on the heels of the 144,000. The 144,000 were in the tribulation. These have come through tribulation. The 144,000 is a perfect and full number. This is a countless number. The 144,000 were kept from the full effect of tribulation. These ones have maintained their faith in the blood of the Lamb and they've endured. They've they've been kept spiritually as well. I think it's speaking of the exact same group of people. Just at different times. It's speaking the 144,000 is the people of God, the full people of God, being sealed and kept safe from the full impact of the judgments coming on the earth, of the judgments on the earth. And then this picture is what it looks like in the end. They've been faithful. They've washed their robes. They've washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. They've hung on to Jesus as He's hung on to them. They've overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. They've been faithful. They've endured to the end. And now they're experiencing their full reward. God has sealed them, and it worked. Here they are. That's what's going on here in chapter 7. And so it's looking at this vast multitude. It's looking at the reward. It's looking at the, the fruit of of holding on to Jesus and being faithful. They've made it through. They've been kept. They've maintained their faith. And this is a word for the early church, no matter what the church faces throughout time, the early church, what they faced, for the church that was dealing with the fall of Jerusalem and what they were facing, for the countless tribulations that have followed in time, and for the great final tribulation before Christ comes, these truths are for all of us. God keeps us. And He will be faithful to keep us. We can trust Him to keep us safe through the storm. And be faithful as a result. It's wonderful just to take time to look at the particulars, how it's described, their reward, what's going on. We see in this section, they are experiencing, they're in the presence of God. That's the best thing of all. They're there with the Lord. He is the author of every good gift. The idea behind the good gift, the reception of the good gift, the experience of the good gift, the fullness of it, it all comes from Him. It's all from Him. All the the way from the beginning to the end. Every good gift in every way, every good thing comes from Him. That's who, who He is. What He's like. He's good. He's good beyond our imagination. He's good in His glory. He's good in the size of who He is. Just the expanse. He's good in the quality of who He is. He's mighty. He's glorious just to be in His presence. He's overwhelming. He's beyond anything you can ever imagine. There's no greater good than God Himself. And there's no better end and purpose of our life than to just be with Him. And enjoy Him. And to know that we're forgiven. where We can come close and draw near as sons and daughters to our Heavenly Father. And behold them in all His glory. So they're in His presence. That, that alone is tremendous. In His presence. And yet it says, He shelters them from all harm. He shelters. He protects them. They're safe. There's no hunger or thirst or, or burning sunshine or scorching heat. Now Again, these are symbolic in many ways to the different difficulties of life. The different challenges. The wants. And yet there's no want. There's no challenges. There's peace. There's His presence. They are entirely protected from all harm and all want. There's only bliss and glory and enjoyment. And holy, eternal pleasure beyond imagination. And the Lamb is their personal shepherd to care for them and lead them in everything. He's wiped away every tear from their eyes. No more sorrow. No more sadness. No more suffering. Glorious, good news for every believer right here in Revelation 7. Guys, we need to hear this. We need the promise of this. A, a future promise really is something we hope for. And the Bible talks about hope. It's, it doesn't mean like, like hoping for the great pumpkin. It's never going to come and somehow it's just a fantasy. No, biblical hope is faith for... A sure promise for the future. It's anticipation. Some of you might be hoping to eat lunch right now because you're hungry. And maybe I'm, no, I don't think I'm taking too much time. But you're hoping and you're not just, it's not a fantasy. You're expecting it. Normally you do eat lunch, right? So there's a, there's like, wow, that's going to be good. That's kind of what biblical hope is like. But even better because the promise is sure than your lunch. Revelation 7 is a sure promise to put your hope in. Hope is so important. Hope is so important. Guys, we live in life amidst the storms and and it can be hard. It can be difficult. And hope will keep you going. That's how Revelation 7 is supposed to function in our lives. It's supposed to inspire us with hope that we keep going. Back in the 1950s, uh, Professor Kurt Richter from Johns Hopkins did a, a very interesting experiment, which probably would be illegal nowadays, um, with apologies to all our animal lovers, self-included. He took a bunch of rats and he took uh, first domestic rats that were used to being with people and he put them in large jars full of warm water and he timed how long it took them to drown. Don't do this at home. Um, But he timed how long it took them. And for the domestic rats, on average, it took A day or two, actually. They would swim in the water for a day or two then eventually drown. Some drowned earlier. Others lasted maybe a little longer. These were rats that were used to being with people and probably were figuring, I'm not going to get harmed by this person who's putting me in the warm water. So they they kept on swimming. Then he took some wild rats, non-domesticated, and they were known for their aggressiveness and their ability to swim as wild rats. He put them in the water. How long do you think it took them to drown? Minutes. They drowned in a couple minutes. He was. It was very clear in the data. Actually, I, I read the paper. Um, it's a real, real experiment. Uh, and he puzzled about that. And he postulated that the difference was hope. That the domestic rats had a hope that their owners would rescue them because they knew people. The wild rats, though, were full of strength and aggression. They were used to fending for themselves. But when faced with an overwhelming circumstance, without hope, they perished. So he did a second part of the experiment to see if, in fact, that was the case. He took numerous rats, took wild rats, and he did the same experiment. But this time, every two minutes or so, or every few minutes—I think it was longer than that—every five minutes, they would reach in and take the rat out and give him a break, and then put him back in. Now, remember the. The rats died relatively quickly before. But this time, they kept on swimming and swimming and swimming. And matter of fact, every time after they had their little rest, they were rejuvenated and they went back in for a swim. And, and they kept on going and going and, it, and they went on indefinitely. As long as they had a, a rest, they kept on going. They knew they were going to be rescued. And so they looked forward to that rescue, so they kept on swimming. The point in the story is the function that the study is the function of hope even in animals and the power of hope to keep on swimming. We need a reason to keep swimming. Revelation 7 gives us that reason. The banker come up as we close Do you need a reason to keep swimming? And I ask that question not just for those of you who know it's the obvious answer. Yes, I do, because life has been crazy hard. Some of us here, some of our members and perhaps some of our guests as well, you are going through very difficult circumstances and you feel like a rat in water ready to give up You need a reason to keep swimming. You feel like Paul on that ship without the word from the angel. But I think there's a second category of people as well. You're not even aware that you'd just rather stop swimming. And your Christian life is perhaps suffering as a result. Because hope actually has everything to do with the Christian life. It has everything to do with with keeping swimming, it has everything to do with seeking the Lord. It has everything to do with your strength and your peace and your joy. And you know what? It also has everything to do with your holiness and obedience. Hope keeps you swimming, keeps you going. And Revelation seven, the truths here are given to us that we might have our hope revived, that you might be inspired to keep swimming. Sometimes we got to swim upstream don't we we have to swim against the current against the tide that can be our culture our circumstances just ourselves the devil can be relentless is relentless isn't he we need a reason to keep swimming and i trust that god would want to use revelation 7 and these promises that we are safe in the father's hands that there's a perfect and full number alongside of us and that there's a final and glorious reward awaiting us Motivate us to keep swimming. Let me pray and then we'll, Toby will transition us to communion and whatever else he wants to lead us in. But Lord,